0: It is time for the new Dan Fogler 4D Experience podcast. Are you ready? Buckle in. Let's go for a ride. Got here. That's perfectly timed, then. Is that right? How the hell
1: are you? I am living the dream, man. Oh yeah? Yeah, you know uh, this dream that we call democracy. Oh
2: God! Oh God! <laughs> what the?
0: What? I don't even know what the uh, the current numbers
1: are, man. I'm here in the UK, and what are they saying? What's the what's the verdict? Well. Somehow it's like eight hundred to fourteen, which is weird because there's only supposed to be like two hundred and seventy, you know, whatever. So, oh, no, it's um, I don't even know the the of the moment, but it's it's a lot closer than people thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's uh,
0: there's a lot of uh, interesting math going on. We'll see what happens. Yeah. What happens. Yeah. For sure. yeah. Um. Well, here we are. We're right on the cusp of oblivion. You know,
1: anything, <laughs> anything can happen, Jeff. Anything. I know. All bets are off. You know, um, it's 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 the strangest time ever. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really kind of uh, unbelievable. And you know, uh, I have to say, I think that after reading Fishkill, I think that perhaps you're behind it all. Oh God, <laughs> you think that uh, you think that maybe I'm manifesting this shit through my. Um, my comic book It's pretty prescient. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh... uh when did you, um... <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: when did I... When did I write Fish Kill? I wrote Fish Kill. Uh, two, three years ago. Yeah, it's taken a little while, yeah. Um, yeah. It was crazy. I, I wrote it because, uh... I guess I wrote it because, um... Right after Trump got elected, so uh, yeah, yeah, about that much ago. Um, yeah, yeah, so Brooklyn Gladiator, I started writing that leading up to like the five years leading up to um
2: the last election, right? And and then uh, I realized as
0: I was writing that, I was like, holy shit, we're we're living the dystopian sci-fi techno- technocracy takeover. And then I was, that's how Fishkill
1: came to be. Um, yeah. Your window of yeah. fiction was closing. It was becoming, quickly becoming nonfiction.
0: Yeah. And, and and it's
1: crazy because I'm like,
0: I'm begging the distributors to, I'm learning, you know, I got three titles. I got Brooklyn Gladiator, Fishkill, and Moon Lake. out with uh, heavy metal right now and, They're just eking out onto the shelves, man. Fucking Diamond just takes their time, you know, distributing the stuff. And I'm like, please get it out there because it's so fucking timely. By the time it gets out there, it'll be like yesterday's news already, yeah.
1: Oh, that's Um, frustrating. It is a little frustrating. But, um, but hey, what are you going to do? These
0: are crazy, crazy times, man. Lucky it's not like, um, Devolved
1: into the Pony Express, you know. Yeah, so yeah. Well, I'm expecting yeah. like the road, like uh, to step outside yeah. the road any day now. Oh God. Um. <laughs> or yeah, or like the the Book of Eli or some shit, man. Or just like. <laughs> uh, yeah, I read that book, so, uh, The Road, the great Cormac McCarthy book. I read that so, yeah. uh, on the on the train going to work when I was at the. Uh, at the LA Times I live in Long Beach California and I, and I would take the train down to downtown LA and I would read the books and I, I read that book and it really got me you know um, the father trying to protect the son and, and yeah. uh, you know the futility of it all and just the, the mothering oppressive despair <laughs> and um, so I actually I was reading and got to an emotional part I, I started crying because I'm a very emotional sensitive guy and I looked around and it, everybody was freaked out. Like because I, I they were like the white guys cried, something's wrong. Like there's like that. they were really, really alarmed. Everybody was really alarmed that there I knew something that was happening that they didn't. Wow. That's wild, man. You, well, no. where were you yeah. on? The, were you on the subway
0: or something? Like where were you at when you're doing
1: On it? the blue it line. Just on the, yeah, it's just on the blue line, um you know, it's like the, huh? the metro rail out here, and uh, I'm I'm being kind of facetious, but I mean, uh, it's uh, it's not a good look crying on the train. People don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it makes people nervous. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and that and that particular that story is so
0: bleak. You're just like, you know, what's better, like living there, you know, being alive during this, or or avoiding it, you know. Um, it's such a bleak, uh,
1: post-apocalyptic scenario. Yeah, the Um, writing is so biblical. You know, it's, it it feels like it really has the language that lives up to the, the, the vision of it. You know, uh, I think, I mean, I think Cormac McCarthy's like brilliant. Um, but, uh, it's like he's from another time, the way he writes how did you how did
0: you get involved
1: with uh, heavy metal you know it's um i i did a story I was at uh, I was working for deadline um, and um, i did a story on the um, the appointment of the new CEO matt medney and interviewing him and talking to him and um, for that piece and then he uh, said let's talk further I think you're a really interesting guy because I've done so many things on um, comic book related through the years and had been on so many movie sets and and um, and had done hero complex you know I launched that website for the LA Times which became like a film festival and a glossy magazine and all this other stuff so uh, he was interested in chatting with me and, and um, you know I told him that i had started reading heavy metal back in 83 uh, when I was thirteen, I bought a copy of the newsstand uh, in South Florida and uh, I still have the issue actually um, and uh, so after a couple of conversations he he started you know uh, asking if i'd be interested in joining the team and kind of uh, bringing some journalistic vision back to a magazine that you know used to have pretty interesting interviews you know with like um, you know Dennis hopper and uh, Deborah Harry and uh, you know the aythmics uh and but it hasn't really had that component for a long long time
0: are you um or do you have articles coming out in the next couple
1: magazines yeah and um in the in the three hundredth issue, I had a really long piece about Mobius and it was about my interview with him during uh you know he, he died in 2012 but Before his, shortly before his death I did, you know, probably the last in-depth interview with him uh, by anybody and um, For the 300th issue. I revisited that article and went back and um, Went through the tapes and found a bunch of stuff. I hadn't used before um, Cool, I can't wait to read that I, I
0: got um, It's cool. I've been doing like um, play- playboy like profile articles on people and they did one on me um that's coming out in three o one really and uh yeah, and i'm excited about it man i mean like you i i like i i i fell in love with uh i mean that all when I was ten years old like in the like movie or, to be working with
1: him now It's just like just a dream come true. Um, I know, yeah. Right? It's, it's, that brand it just conjures up okay. like it has a such a, a mystique to it for me, you know, because it really represented something totally different than American comics and something totally different than American science fiction. You know, it felt like it was more sophisticated and just kind of edgier and, and a little more surreal and. And unpredictable, and there's a lot of boobs. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> it just had a lot going for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really wanna.
0: Are you gonna do uh, any fiction, or are you just gonna stick to to prose? Like, what, what, what's your or what like, what's your deal? Like, uh, are you
1: gonna do, do you, I remember when we had our interview that you were saying that you were gonna try and franchise the comic books. I am, yeah. I've actually, I'm, I've actually started working on two different things. And um, it's a little uh, nerve-wracking just because it's the first – not nerve-wracking, it's a little intimidating, quite honestly, just because I've been a writer for a long time. I mean, um, I'll be 51 this month, but um, I've been writing since – I've been a journalist since I was 17. Um, and uh, and have a lot of, you know, clips and stuff through the years. I had like 2,800 stories published in the L.A. Times. Um, during my twenty one years there um but i 've never written fiction before you know um so it 's a different uh different muscle a different arena but uh i am finding it uh it 's really exciting uh, so far though i I've, I've, I've find it a lot easier to come up with ideas of concepts and plots than characters and voices so far. Right, right, right. Yeah, I remember you asking about that.
0: Um, so for the listeners, you got to check out, uh, Jeff, uh, Mind Mindspace. That's the name of your podcast, right? That is correct. Yeah, um, check that out. It's very cool. Uh, that's, uh, that's how I met Jeff on the podcast and, um, asked him to come on this. And, and so what what was intriguing was, um, I'm a fan of Hunter S. Thompson. You had said, Oh yeah, I interviewed I interviewed Hunter I was like, Well excuse me? Like uh, uh and you said it was it was extremely gone, though. Like you like you like surprised him or right, you know, and uh you called him a bat you called him a bat of the blue. So um I love like I, I I'm a comic book guy, I'm a graphic novel guy, but um Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I think was the first book that I ever like that didn't have I mean it had that art in it, you know, that amazing sure. acid wash art in it. But um, that was mostly, you know, that was that was words. And it was it, it was it was like uh I guess it was it was kinda like Bukowski on on crack or something, you know. It it was and I uh I just, I just drank the words in. it was my kind of poetry. <clears throat> and then the movie, I love the movie because uh, for, for so many reasons, but I love Terry Gilliam. So to have that, yeah, to have that combination was really special. So I guess my question is um, who, what kind of journalist, uh, Gonzo, uh, Maniac, <laughs> interviewers who inter- inspired you to become a uh, an interviewer so early on man 17
1: that's it's like you knew what you wanted to do well you know it's funny cuz what happened um for me is I, I i all when i was 17 16 um the thing i wanted more than anything was to be a comic book artist and um i was taking all these art classes i had he no AP. Yeah, I had these AP art classes in in high school, you know, for college credit, and I was really kind of focused on it, and, and um, um, then I I got a, I took a new, the newspaper class, and I wrote an article uh, as an assignment, and it was an interview, it's kind of a heavy article for a kid to be writing, but I went and interviewed this girl who'd been hit by a drunk t- driver, and she was paralyzed, and she was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of her life, and uh, her mom was starting the Mothers Against Drunk Driving um, chapter on campus. And so I wrote about this. And I went to my art class that day, and, and I had this teacher, Mrs. Kaluidas, who I liked a great deal and found very inspirational. And she said uh, – she was reading the article, and then she told me to stay after class. And she sat me down. And she said, you know, you're very good at art, but you're not as good as I was when I was your age. And I'm doing this. And this is okay, but it's not great. I, d- I read this article you're doing. You're great at this. You should be doing this. Which was a really kind of a brave thing for a teacher wow. to do. And it kind of hit me like I, 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 I got really upset. I didn't know, you know, I was kind of angry and confused. and stuff. Yeah. But um, eventually I took the advice and it, like, changed my life. Like, it, you know, I ended up, you know – uh, going to uh the University of Florida and editing the school paper there and then um I was managing editor as a freshman and then went out to you know uh the LA Times but uh and then um you know so it became the focus of my professional life and adult life um so it was really uh wonderful that she took that chance you know um but as as far as uh as soon as I started getting into Journalism and reading, you know, uh, articles and books and stuff. I found the same people that you're talking about. You know, I mean, the Hunter S. Thompson stuff, and and I love the artwork uh, that you mentioned, the Ralph Steadman artwork, and it just had this counterculture energy, and it jumped off the page, and the words did too. Um, I liked Hunter, and, and I liked even more. I liked Tom Tom Wolfe. Like I found that his stuff spoke to me on an even deeper level because it it had a, a kind of a grace to it. Uh, I loved Hunter's kind of, uh, uh just, you know, uh, madness, but Tom Wolfe had this calculated really like a uh, beautiful writing style, but it was just as vivid.
0: If I, uh, was that teacher of yours, I think I would, cause I come from more of the, the yes, the yes and improvisational world. I would have said, you know, Instead of stop this and do journalism, I probably would have said, you know, continue that and, you know, do journalism. And uh, but I think it's I think it's cool that you're. I wonder, are you, uh,
1: are you when you do your comics, are you gonna draw them, or are you going, or are you just gonna write them? I think I'm just gonna write them. I've done a lot of the concept stuff, but. Um, now I see what she saw then, which is my limitations. You know, I just I I, I think that uh, uh, she was pre- being pretty candid. Um, it's hard for a kid to hear that, though. Man, you're so much invested, shit. You know, it, I really was, and but you know what? The 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 thing that kind of uh, kept it from being a negative, I think, is that. The experience of walking around school that day and the next day and the day after that and seeing all the people reading my article, uh, it really, really was very, and having people walk by and, and be aware of what I said and like it or be affected by it, you know, people were crying and things like that, and it, it made me feel really relevant in a different way. Um, and it was the first thing I found that I was, I was good at, like, you know, I wasn't good at, um, I could have, Amaze my classmates in kickball, or I could amaze them in, uh, you know, spelling bees or, you know, uh, uh, in popularity contests. But this was the thing that made me distinctive. So I, I bombed onto it pretty quick, and and uh, it it just became, after that, just kind of a um, a mission. And anything that you start that young, um, if you do it really focused, you, you get a head start on your generational peers. And that that can carry for quite a while. I mean, I um, ended up at the L.A. Times when I was 21, 22 years old. And I don't know that I was that much better than um, my peers that were my age. It's just I got, I was fully developed faster than they were. I got to the finish line faster than they did.
0: You want to know what your name means? I really do. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, well, boucher
1: is French for butcher.
0: You know that, right?
1: The man of meat. That's that's what I like to call myself. Yes, the
0: man of meat, the fancy man of
1: meat. <laughs> and um, Jeffrey, you know what Jeffrey means? Uh, I, I, messenger or something like that, maybe. No. It I'm means sure. God. It means God
0: peace. Oh, I was not so you, close. I was not close. So at you're, all. yeah, you're essentially, um, you're a Game of Thrones character. You are God peace butcher. God
1: like peace it. butcher. <laughs> the peaceful butcher. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, I he like brings it.
1: peace to the land with his, with his cleaver. The <laughs> cleaver being <laughs> kind of subtle. They do bring about a kind of a calmness in the end, I guess, <laughs>
2: yes, after all do. said and
1: done. But uh, yeah. what, what, is, what does your name mean? Do you know? You must know.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, Daniel, Kevin Fogler. Uh, Daniel means God is my judge. Ooh. Holy crap. Yeah. And uh, Kevin means handsome. <laughs> and uh, Fogler means bird catcher. God okay. is my judge.
2: Yeah.
1: God is my judge handsome bird catcher. You. you know, that's what I would have guessed. If I just yeah. what I was guessing. I would have guessed that. Um you know, and Daniel's <laughs> my middle name, by the way. So well, right well, well,
0: well. I'm right there friends. with you in your judgment. There you go. Oh my god. Your name is God peace. God is my judge, butcher. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Basically I'm the Holy Spirit. I'm coming in Yeah. <laughs> Oh you know, that's, I always thought that that would be the the, the best uh, shock value comic book to do. You know, like if you, you know, is to do some people have made Jesus Christ, the comic book character, like in recent years, you know, they, they either is like uh, kind of a satire uh, parody or just over the top kind of uh, farce. Um, but I think if you really wanted to really get people shaken up, um, uh, if you wanted to get the church riled up and such, I, uh, doing a comic book on the Holy Ghost, who just comes and just does Holy Ghost stuff to people, I think that would be really cool because he, he, the Holy Ghost seems like he's pretty close to Batman already. Oh,
0: interesting.
1: The Holy Ghost, kind of yeah, like, like uh, it's well, so vague on, it. on the Holy Ghost who he is, even like you know, like yeah. he, for a guy that gets like top three billing, like you never hear. Right. I mean. W- He's not in the Bible.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like you can get, couldn't you be imbued with the spirit
1: of the Holy Ghost? Kind of like the Green Lantern? Like anybody could have the spirit of the Holy
0: Ghost if you're worthy. It's like a uh, hand
1: oh, like Thor's hat, shaken. Oh, I, I was thinking like Deadman, Man, how he possesses bodies, but uh, the hammer oh. makes more sense. Yeah, the hammer yeah, makes more Yeah, sense. yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Meljinar, Bajajanar. Bajajanar. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's an interesting character. Yeah.
1: Why the hell not? Um, sure. The closest really thing that... Uh, tolerance and and uh, is at an all time high. So it seems like a really good time to be uh, kind of poking people in the eye with. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: well, the, hold on. You didn't. You didn't say what your comic book is about or, or what you're dabbling with here.
1: Like, what, what? What are you? What are you doing, man? One of them is like. Um, is kind of a sci fi um it's a story called Arma A R M A and that's the name of a planetoid that's that's uh is visited by a group of uh earthling uh, of you know astronaut types and uh uh in the great tradition of Twilight Zone or of uh Planet of the Apes, the 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 thing that they find is not what they expect and when they think that they know what it is, they're wrong, and by the time they figure it out, it's too late. So it's uh, kind of a kind of a classic sci-fi, uh, uh, you know, other-world adventure. Cool. Yeah. What, what, what did you say? There was
2: another one,
1: or was that the was that the, Yeah, wow? the other one's kind of a mashup um, between you know like genres and stuff. Um, but I'm not. I think I'm going to hold on to that. I have to be a little circumspect with that one because it's okay. it's, gonna, it's too easy to steal. It's just too easy to steal. And you're going to do that with uh, heavy metal? Yeah, I'm doing that with heavy metal, and, and I'm really really excited about it. You know, and and the, but the thing I'd like to do most and um, is a thing that kind of melds um, all the different things I've done uh, would be uh, kind of a comic book memoir of my adventures as a as a crime reporter and as a rock and roll reporter. Because I spent when I was at the LA Times, my first six seven years there, I was a, uh, covered crime. I covered all these murders, uh, plane crashes, and went to San Quentin for an execution. And I mean, all kinds of intense stuff. And then oh, great. switched switched over to after that and did six years as the the music writer for the uh, the lead feature writer for the calendar section and pop music. So, you know, went on tour with Metallica and ACDC and Justin Timberlake and went to have have dinner at Beyonce's house and go to, uh, uh, interview Springsteen at rehearsals and stuff like that. I mean, it's just a dream job. It was like the greatest job ever. And then, um, the next six, seven years after that, I, I switched over and I covered film and, you know, was doing all the, going on movie sets. I've been on like 50 movie sets and, and, um, doing the Oscars and stuff like that. But the first two, uh, sections of the career, you know, have led, took me to a lot of interesting places, saw a lot of weird things, things that would really lend themselves to, uh, um, you know, behind the scenes stories. Cause even the stories I've written, there's all the behind the scenes stuff that didn't get in that I can write about now, um, comfortably and stuff. But I, I, I I think I'd like to do that as like almost like a graphic novel, like uh, kind of like yeah. influ- influenced like by American Splendor or things like that, yeah, yeah. and you know um, the different memoirs that we've seen. Um, <laughs> and, and shit's funny too, like you know, um, like Clint Eastwood trying to land a helicopter on me, um, almost getting to... <laughs> yeah, he was he was fucking around with me. He was just messing with me. He tried to scare me by landing a helicopter on me when I was. Wow. Um, waiting for him on a sea cliff up in Carmel and he got out he the helicopter comes I'm I'm staying there I'm waiting to interview him right and I've interviewed him three or four times uh before this and he's got a new movie coming out at this point and it's uh called Hereafter the one with Matt Damon it's kind of a ghost story I, uh okay it's kind of a for- forgotten Clint Eastwood movie but pretty good and um he he's a very loyal guy so like if you do something, and he—it's really good. He remembers it, and I had written these stories about him that were really, really good. So his publicist, or well, the publicist from Warner Brothers, calls uh, the LA Times and said, "You know, Clint—he's got a new movie. He's you know, good news is he's willing to do an interview with the LA Times, uh, you know, by phone, uh, to promote the film. Or if if Jeff is available, he'll do it in person, which is very, very cool. Like, I mean, for for them to do that, I mean, it's not." the editors don't necessarily like it. Like you know, They're like, well, we don't like to let people pick the writer that's going to do the piece. But since I had a relationship with them, they, they, they signed off on it. So I drive up to Carmel to interview him, and I'm waiting for him at uh, there's that little re- resort lodge that he owns up that way. And uh, it was all shut down, and there's a, a little ridge, um, and um, it leads down to this little meadow, and then there's a, the sea. The ocean's right there, you know, and the churning sea and the, the great slate gray skies. And I'm staying there taking all this in. There's little lambs running around. It's, you know, like really very nice. And um, I was thinking what a, a gorgeous day it was. And I look up and I see a helicopter, and, and it's coming my direction. I don't really think anything about it. And then it's getting closer and closer. And I'm like, wow, that, that helicopter looks like it's going to come right here. And uh, it's getting, you know, making a beeline toward me, and I'm like, Holy shit! Like suddenly, I feel like I'm in North by Northwest. Like everything around me is like flying around, and (laughs) start
2: running. Running on the (laughs) cornfield.
1: Why? Why? Why is like why is somebody trying to kill me with a helicopter? And uh, um, then uh, the helicopter lands, and there's one person in it. (laughs) The door opens, and Clint Eastwood gets out. Now, you know, I'm like, I don't know about, I don't know about you. uh, Entrances are are important. (laughs)
2: <laughs> um,
1: yeah. I've never had anything like that and never no, really the single best entrance I've ever seen. You know, he just lands this helicopter by himself, hops out. He's got a members only jacket on and he's got his hands, <laughs> um, his hands are stuffed in his pocket with the ultimate kind of confident, casual, you know, uh, uh, gait as he comes across the, this, uh, this, this pasture. And, uh, he looks like uh, he, I, in the story I described him, he has uh, golfer shoulders, like completely relaxed, and like fighter pilot eyes. Like always intense, always like kind of on right. the thing. And it's just kind of such a great mix because he seems so relaxed but completely uh, uh, coiled at the same time, which is weird. And he walks up to me and he says, he said the single coolest thing I've ever heard anybody say <laughs> uh, off the top of their head. And he just walked up and said, sorry, I'm late. I got hung up over Shasta. It's just, of course you did. You, <laughs> like, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood still at the controls. You know, he, I mean, he was like 80 years old at the time. Whoa. Yeah. I don't think
0: he's ever going to
1: die. That guy. His mom lived to, I think 104, 105. Holy shit. Yeah. What's yeah, your you know, favorite, he, what's your favorite Eastwood movie? Ooh, I do, uh, I, I, had so many encounters with him. I admire him so much. Um, I would say, you know, I like the Leone movies. Um, I can't, maybe Unforgiven. Yeah, yeah, I like that one a lot too. That's, yeah. There's something he, about the, it too.
0: Mature Leone
1: style. Yeah, it's like yeah. Um, well, it feels like it has all his other uh, movies yeah. as the backstory, so it feels like tailored. Feels oh, like Outlaw Josie Wales, and it feels like yeah. you know, all the different movies through the years kind of uh, built up, and that was the, the yeah you know, the comeuppance or the the, the, the final judgment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My dad, my guy. dad really loved cool. dad loved
0: Eastwood. My dad, my dad got me into Eastwood. My favorite was uh, High Plains Drifter. Yeah, I, yeah. uh, I love how he just walks into that town
1: and just turns everything up on its on its head um yeah uh wow yeah you know a crazy Um, thing he told me he uh he was offered the superman role for that christopher reed movie back in 78 whoa and uh i did a whole story on it because he told me about he hadn't really mentioned that before but they had offered it to robert redford as well and i was I was thinking, like, have people ever seen Superman? Because Superman just knocked, like Robert Redford or, or Clint Eastwood, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. the funniest thing. Exactly.
0: Stop putting that kryptonite in my face, punk.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, he would have been a good Batman. He would have
2: been a good Batman. Yeah, so. he would have been perfect for the Dark Knight Returns, you know, or if or they brought him in for, like, uh, I think that's what they're going to do with um
0: with Michael Keaton in this new Flash movie is they're going to make him be the older the older Batman in the future or whatever the fuck um but yeah I think that I think yeah I think uh, Eastwood would have been amazing as the Dark Knight Returns man um
2: so Don Peyote I made this movie called Don Peyote it's the closest I've ever done to like immersive gonzo journalism where I felt like
0: I was living it, you know, where yeah. I was like a like a fucking test subject. Um, what was what was the closest that you ever came to being like, holy fuck, I am I am living this life
1: right now. i a gorgeous, just, okay. uh, Like over the top uh, circumstance, like uh, uh well, just like, like like really it, reckless, it, it, like out of control. <laughs>
0: Either one, man.
1: Okay, gonna, well, you know, I, I'll give you a quick quick post, uh, snapshot, uh, and you tell me. Okay, one is I go to Budapest to interview Brad Pitt on the set of World War Z, the most expensive zombie movie ever made, and um, I watch him uh, do a scene. I've not, never met him before, and he doesn't do interviews on the movie sets, right? Um so this is the first one, so it's kinda of strange. And in the scene he's he's really, really emaciated. He had, and he hadn't eaten for like a week in real life because he wants to look emaciated for the scene. Um and he's only wearing like um boxers and he he does this whole scene and he looks like he looks so skinny he doesn't even look healthy, right? And he gets done and I'm there and it's about midnight and the crowded we're in a factory on the outskirts of, of uh of Budapest and, and uh... getting all kinds of toxins in our system I'm really sure um, and he says I, I introduced myself and he, and he says you know uh, do you like chili dogs I said what and he said do you like chili dogs and I said yeah, sure of course I do what am I a communist yeah I I like chili dogs and he goes follow me he's so hungry he hasn't eaten for you know like a week He wants to eat before the interview, and he makes a beeline, still wearing boxers. Now he's got a blanket wrapped around him, and we walk outside. And up on this hill next to the set, there's a hot dog stand from New York, like one of the red and yellow with the umbrella, the whole thing. And a lady standing there, and he's had it flown in for this moment, for his first meal in a week. And he walks up, and he goes, two chili dogs. And and, uh, I stand there with my hand out because I think he's going to turn around and hand me one. And he just keeps walking. I'm like, oh, okay, two chili dogs. And then standing there eating our chili dogs, and I looked down, and there's 2,000 Hungarian zombie extras standing, staring at us, looking up Brad Pitt's boxers while we eat chili dogs, and they smoke their European cigarettes. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, some days you don't even need to figure out what to write. You just show up, and it just, it just takes care of itself.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, shit, man. It's the strangest scene, you know. And then but as far as like out of control stuff, uh I got shot in the ass with a rubber bullet at the uh Democratic National Convention in 2000 Whoa. Uh, while while Rage Against the Machine was playing. So that was that's that's pretty high on the list.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I
1: uh did that, I hurt? Hell... did that hurt?
2: Did
1: it hurt? It hurt. It did hurt. It did hurt, and I, I, I found one on the ground. I don't know if it's the same one that hit me, if it's the one that hit the people next to me, but I took it, and I still have it as a souvenir. I'm very proud of that. Wow. Um, then there was another time, uh, I went up in a Russian MiG fighter, uh, wow. fighter plane that, uh, um wow. had, that, uh, was bought by the lead singer of The Offspring, and he keeps it out in Elsinore. He painted it, put an Anarchy A on the back. And, uh, I went up in that and pulled a couple G, uh, pulled a two Gs, as they say. Um, and that, that, you know, stuff you don't expect to do things that you don't expect Wait. to happen. You flew it? No, no. It's a two seater. I, I, I flew in oh. it, but I wasn't, I wasn't controlling it. You and, were um, you know, they, they said that it's a, it's a special registered experimental, uh, plane under the law because you can't, you can't own a fighter plane. In the United States, as a private citizen, you know they kind of frown on that um, and I, was talking, I was talking to Dexter about it, and I said, "So what happens like if you fly beyond this assigned area in around Elsinore, California, and he said, "Well, if you get within like hundred and fifty miles of Los Angeles uh in a fighter plane, they'll just shoot you down they don't they don't even they don't even call you on the radio." <laughs> I said, you know, it's probably a good policy, actually. because if someone's got a fighter plane flying toward L.A. Again. It's probably not for good reason.
0: Holy shit, dude. So this guy, I can't believe it. I can't believe he was flying. The lead
1: singer of Offspring was flying a fucking MiG? Yeah, he's a pilot. He, um pilot. Uh, he's flown himself on tour. Um, <laughs> Dude, There's more than that, you know what? He's got a master's degree in microbiology from USC. Wow. Yeah, dude, smart. You, you ever uh, you ever interviewed Nicholson? He's my favorite?: I have.: Yeah, I have. He's great. He's great. Oh, you know, the, the thing about Tell Jack Nicholson is the, his greatest asset is I've never met anybody that has he has a comp- complete lack of vanity. He really, really, really doesn't care what you think but he has style so he's not like he you know he doesn't care what you think but he still cares what he thinks it's a really interesting thing so um uh, i think that's his sort of greatest attribute but you know uh the sunglasses are pretty good too you you must describe to me every second of this interview you had with him um you know with him, it was pretty short, uh, it, and it was in public. It was at the Golden Globes. Uh, you know, the great thing about the Globes is that they have the, the dinner seating. It's uh, unlike the Oscars or, um, you know, the Emmys or any of the rest, where you sit in a theater configuration at the at the Golden Globes. Everybody's sitting around big tables like you're at a wedding reception. It's just it's the wedding reception that's being attended by the most famous people in the world. Um, and during the commercial breaks of the show, you can do whatever you want um and so i i was there um one year it was the year of that departed had uh was up for all the awards and um I was seated about four tables away from the, the uh the uh the stage, and he was seated odd, oddly enough one table away from the stage <laughs> um and every commercial break I would go over to a different table and talk to people and I went over to and sat next to him like three three commercial breaks in a row and and just talked to him and and he was just charming and funny and and um he was talking to uh, Scorsese and and um um Matt Damon was around and I talked to him as well and it was great just seeing these guys in each other's uh, orbit and uh and everybody, like, looking around the room, Oh well, wow, there's Springsteen, you know, like, uh, in a room full of movie stars, everybody only cares about the rock stars, which is kind of funny. Um, it's like, you know, if you're with basketball players, they they want to be rappers. If you're with rappers, they want to be car drivers. If you're with car drivers, they want to be, you know, it's just everybody wants to be one thing to the left. But um, but Nicholson was terrific, and and my main takeaway was that he, was a really good listener. Like he like was really focused on everything I was saying and cared. Uh and he seemed to do that with everybody he talked to, which I I admire. Um for a guy that's had the kind of life he has. You know, I've I've interviewed Mick Jagger a couple of times and he he like just my feeling is that like he's done so much and lived so long at a level that none of us will can even fathom that it's really hard for him to feel interested in things that are around him. Um you know, it was like an interview or something like that. There was nothing I could say to Mick Jagger that was going to be interesting to him when I talked to him. But with Nicholson, I felt, uh, when I talked to him, like, anything I said, he was going to list, uh, give a listen to. And and um, he just had a really warm spirit. I
2: like your style, Jeff. Um, that's, yeah, that's hysterical. Uh,
0: that's amazing. It, it, was there anyone that you ever spoke to Cause you got some enormous balls here, man. Yeah, like, that's true. Like, is, it, is, yeah.
2: is there anyone
0: that you ever spoke to that you just, like, your brain went out the window? You're like, oh my god, I, I, you're like, sometimes you know, like, I find, I don't know what's gonna happen with me. Like, I, I, I like, sometimes I'll meet one of my heroes and I'll be perfectly fine. You know, I'll, I'll be perfectly charming and I can hold a conversation with them and sometimes I'll be one of my heroes and my fucking brain just goes out the window. I can't move my mouth. And I just, I'm just like an asshole. And um, you say the wrong things. And, um, has that ever happened to you? Uh,
1: it, you know, I think it, it has, um, to a certain extent, there was, there was one time I was in a uh, real trouble of having that happen in a big way. Uh, and something happened that helped me avoid it. Um, Growing up, uh, my favorite writer, like when I was 15 or 16 years old, my favorite writer would have been Bruce Springsteen. I, and I don't mean like my favorite songwriter. I mean, he was just my favorite writer. You know, I would write out his lyrics, uh, you know, screen door slams, Mary's dress slams. Poetry. Like poetry, She dances across the porch. I mean, it's, it is. It's this beautiful, like Americana poetry. Um, and uh so in two thousand. I think it was probably uh, 2009, 2010. Um, I had to interview him, uh, I got to interview him in New Jersey, um, doing rehearsals uh, for two days. I got two days with him uh, and the East Street Band, and uh, it was my editors at the time. So they, I, they were kind of rewarding me for you know years of service, I think, because uh, by that point I was off the music beat, and I. I, I uh, but they all knew I was a Springsteen fan, so this was kind of their way of giving me um, a a pat on the back, I think. And um, I was really, really psyched to do it. Right before I left uh, L.A. to go back east to do the interview, I saw Jon Stewart interview Springsteen on his show. And I love Jon Stewart. I am a huge Jon Stewart admirer, and I think he's good for America and and good for everything. Um, And I like his interviews. This is the only time I've ever seen him do a bad interview. I, I watched it. It was excruciating because it's, he started off. Spring, Springsteen came out and he was very excited uh, to be there. And John was clearly excited and started telling a story like, you know, when I was 15 and I drove across the tunnel and I had, you know, and he told this like long ramp up about what Springsteen's music meant to him with all this personal kind of imagery. And you could see Springsteen the entire time. He's just getting smaller and smaller like in his seat, like he just just it went from being a conversation to being more like an audit, you know, like he, he just disengaged a little bit. And I realized that what John Stewart was doing, he's saying to Springsteen what Springsteen hears every single day of his life from anybody that passes him on the street, hey, you know, your music uh, did this, or hey, you know, my cousin worked with your sister, or, you know, there's every single person tries to do this artificial connection to him, and it's just it's numbing, and and there's nothing he can do with it. So seeing this interview on TV, it, all this hit me. I'm like, oh my God, this this is John Stewart has just sacrificed himself to save me because I would have done this exact same thing. Um, so after seeing that, I I went to to Jersey and I acted like I didn't even know who Bruce Springsteen was. Like I, I mean, I wasn't disrespectful, and I and I, my questions were rooted in, uh, you know, in, informed you know points of view. But I didn't let on that any of the sort of my judgment of him, um, and more than that, when I walked into the interview, the first thing I did was I kind of challenged him a little bit, like uh, not literally, but just in my tone, because I I said, you know, it's really nice to meet you. I I've interviewed um, uh, Keith Richards and I've interviewed Dick Cheney, and I both of them in the last month. Um, so I don't know what you got today, but it better be good because. You know, standards are pretty high this month. You know, <laughs> like and in you know, a kind of a silly, fun way. And uh, and he he's like, wait, you talked to Dick Cheney? And I said, yeah. And he goes, what was that like? And then I told him a whole story, a um, uh, kind of a funny story about Dick Cheney, which you don't know, how many of those are there? Um, and I see him leaning forward in his seat uh, while I'm telling the story, and and that's when I knew that I was going to be fine. You know, like if somebody leans back in their seat. Um, you, you've lost them, but if they lean forward while you're talking and you haven't even asked the first question, uh, you're going to get a great interview. And, and the interview did turn out great. Um, and uh, although I think day two, I kind of blew my cover as a Springsteen fan when um, <laughs> I asked him, you know, you lived in Jersey and, uh, now and you lived in Jersey as a, as a young person, but uh, there was you know, a chunk of time where you lived in L.A., I think it was like six, seven years, I'm not sure. Uh, now, but um, you know, what, what what do you hear in your music that is from Los Angeles as opposed to being from the East Coast? Is there anything that sticks with you? And he's like, No, you know, I don't I don't even know if I ever really, you know, even had a song um, a song about L.A. And I said, Oh well, you know, Souls of the Departed on Lucky Town has the line, uh, "Young Rafael Ramirez was just seven years old when he was shot down by some East." LA <laughs> and, yeah. and then there's like a long pause and like he looks at me <laughs> and I look at him and I'm like oh, shit I think I think I just outed myself you know but I mean who's quoting lyrics off a of lucky town it's not even a East Street Band album you know so um, here's yeah. anyway. <laughs> that one that one was uh, it's the guys that are famous when you were a kid are the tough ones for me like Robert Redford and Clint Eastwood um, Ooh, yeah. you know Dustin Hoffman Uh, those guys Warren Beatty a little bit um, those are the ones that I get a little kind of we get some butterflies Uh, but you know like I said they had me cover they they sent me to St. Quentin the LA Times to cover an execution and you know after that movie stars don't really scare you you know like like, it's nothing it's, It's you can't compare you can't compare to like having those metal doors uh-huh. locked behind you at midnight with all these armed guards and all the screaming prisoners and watching them bring Jesus. a guy and, and strap him down to the gurney and, and old you? It. Um, I would have been, uh, about 30. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that after that, it's like, you know, Bruce Willis, you know, it's nice to meet you. It's okay, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. You know, like I, you know, I, I can I can contain myself. Um, I, I, I'll tell you this: I, I enjoy interviewing musicians more than than actors. Um, yeah. I think I think the that the best musicians are themselves, and the best actors aren't. You know, oh. in in a way, uh, in their performance, I mean. You know, like if you go to an Eminem concert or a Neil Young concert or um, you know a, a, a Black Flag concert, you know who those people are. Like uh, they they they're, they can't do what they're doing if if they don't have if they're not possessed by the things that are coming out of them. But if you go see you know uh, a, a stage play with a really sophisticated actor, um, you you don't know them you know you know that character you know and that that's their success is, is 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 doing that transformation so as a journalist with like a very set uh set uh group of priorities you know i'm going to get to get this person to tell me something that's interesting tell me something about themselves maybe reveal something uh about their past or their future or their present uh for all those things you want authenticity so that's the only reason that the musicians are a little more fun like i spent a, a day with ice cube and I knew exactly who, who he was. I spent uh, three days with Kevin Spacey, and I couldn't tell you anything about him, you know, about who he was. Who, um, yeah, of, yeah, you yeah. Know. Crazy. Who? Cool. Okay, I, I guess I should ask you, who haven't you interviewed, and who do you want to? Who's like who's on your bucket list? Like, well, that's interesting. Uh, the, the 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 ones that I would want to interview the most are the ones that are no longer with us, you know, um, and some of them haven't been gone that long, you know, like I was a huge clash fan. Like I would love to interview the clash, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I, they were going to reunite at Coachella before Joe died, cool. you know, so, it, uh, that was real sad. And I never got to, I met David Bowie once in a convenience store, like off the job, oddly. And he had a, it, interaction with him that was really wonderful but uh, I never got to do an interview with him so I would love to interview Bowie Bob Dylan who is still with us uh, somebody I kind of go back and forth on whether I would like to interview him or not because he does so much um, you know kind of smoke and mirrors with interviews like he he, being obscure is is an art form with him so that might be a little cloying um, or frustrating but I would say something like that um but those are you know I mean most people quite honestly I got to interview the most of the people I really wanted to interview um because I got to a level at the times where I could almost do what I want as long as I could get somebody if I could arrange the interview I could do it um so I, I went after a lot of people that you know were on that bucket list like uh Leonard Cohen and I did sit down interviews with Leonard Cohen and James Brown and um Paul McCartney, um, you know, a lot of my heroes, you know.
0: So, um, Paul, that's interesting. Yeah. Let's pause on Paul for a second. How are are you uh, uh, with going down conspiratorial pathways? Um, I'm all for it. Okay. So, you're aware of the whole, uh, Paul is dead and the, um, yeah. Yes. So when you were interviewing him, were you, who were you thinking that was that <laughs> in the back here? And like, am I talking to the real guy
1: here? <laughs> no, no. Um, I guess, you know, I knew too much about that, that one, to, you know, it, that one doesn't really hold up very well. Um, but it, uh, it was very, very amusing. Uh, and fun, you know, it it had a lot of good material in it, you know, all the different hints and clues and stuff like that. But uh, uh, with Paul, I I did, he, you know, he, he seems like such a buoyant and kind of sometimes silly, you know, like a silly guy. So like, uh, I just don't, I didn't see him as being part of the kind of a uh, abduction replacement uh, take takeover you know, <laughs> I, well, uh, I don't know I think if, oh, they, if there was a conspiracy like that we wouldn't have got silly love songs we would have got something different oh I, I see so. I don't know I but, uh, he, he was tough you know do you remember by the way you'll appreciate this because uh, there's nothing quite so impressive as when a real real powerful intellect and a sharp wit devotes themselves to something that's completely petty and and and, uh, juvenile and hurtful. Uh, and so in the spirit of that, do you know what nickname the British, uh, the gossip press fleet street, what nickname they came up with for Heather Paul McCartney's ex of the one that with the really vicious uh, divorce. (laughs) No, what?
2: Pogo. Ono. Oh, no.
1: Oh. The worst, that, it, it, but on some level, you really have to admire that. I mean, that's a really sophisticated, terrible thing to say about a person that has lost one of their limbs in a in a car accident. You know, so. Oh. But they, uh, yeah. but, uh, but Paul, he uh, he was great. You know. Yeah. Um, that's fucked know, up. I, yeah, it's fucked up. But she's not a she's by all accounts not a good person. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Sorry, <laughs> I'm so judgmental. I'm a really a nice person. I've only written like three or four <laughs> things in my life. Like, uh, <laughs> I where I, I wrote uh, Courtney Love. Uh, she used to call Hello. my house at like three in the morning all the time. You know, right. she got my yeah. home number, and uh, my ex really loved that. Oh my God, Courtney's on the phone for you. Courtney's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sleeping like a person does. What are you doing? (laughs) Um, She, uh, I I, I wrote about her. Um, For years, the life of Courtney Love has been an unmade bed. But in recent months, it's been more like a mattress on the freeway. Uh, Hazardous, tattered, and hideous. Oh, Oh my God. Wow. That's pretty (laughs) neat.
2: But it's also kind
1: of a...
0: It's kind of like that, um, it's like that bag, that plastic bag floating in American beauty, you know. There's still something very poetic to that plastic flapping bag. Um, Holy shit. Okay, so, we got, we, we, man, like, you're, you have to make a graphic novel and you have to start doing these, like, start, like, eking out these stories as like shorts and heavy metal, you know, and just like keep it, keep accumulating them and then just start putting them out in graphic novels,
1: man. That's, that would be ideal.
2: You know, that that would be
1: the dream. Um, And there's, like I said, there's some really nutty ones, uh, just interesting places and people and, and controversial stuff. And, you know, like um, Warren Zevon, late great Warren Zevon called my desk one day. I wasn't expecting it. And, uh, uh, I had just written a story, um, that he read in that day's paper, and he said, Oh, well, I have a story for you. You seem like a good writer and stuff. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dying. And, uh, he proceeded to tell me that he had a terminal, um uh, prognosis for asbestosis. You know, he had gotten, uh, asbestos. Um, wow. Uh, Exposure and had uh, gone worst case scenario, and, and indeed, he did, you know, he was working on Almond, and he died uh, shortly after it was finished. But uh, you know, I didn't expect that. And there was a day where Sly Stone, uh, you know, had been um, lost in action for 18, 20 years. Um, one of his folks called up and said, you know, Sly I really likes your stories. Um, would you like to do an interview with him uh, today at 3 p.m. and? Uh, I'm like, yeah, sure, okay, and I show up and I walk up to him and it's this empty bar and he's he's just like uh, he's kind of vibrating kind of slightly and um, he's got some sort of uh, uh, neural issue I think from uh, all the cocaine and and um, partying and uh, in the seventies and. I walk up and they introduce myself, and he stops me and says, "Wait, wait!" with his hand. And these guys come in, and they set up a whole nest of music equipment. And I say, "What is going on?" And he he shushes me again. No, no, wait. No, you know. Uh, I'm like, okay, Whoa. sure. And I'm just standing there, and they finally set it up microphone, plug it all in. He sits down. He he uh, brushes off his lap, you know, like uh, stretches his fingers, and then puts his hand on the keyboard. And, Leans into the microphone and then proceeds to do the interview through a vocoder, so he sounds like Peter Frampton. Do you feel like I do the entire freaking interview? Like uh, oh I question, he would only answer in this music. Uh, what the know, fuck? Food. It's so funny, dude. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I asked him a question. I said, "So Sly, um, Woodstock. <laughs> you were at Woodstock, 1969. I, I can't even imagine what it was like. Three days, peace, love, and music." Um, it's probably, um, overwhelming the the different things that, that name conjures up for you, but maybe give me just one snapshot memory. Tell me one thing that you remember about your days at Woodstock. And he he thinks for a second, he goes, we came in by helicopter. We had a helicopter. We had the Rolling Stones helicopter. I said, okay. And we came in by helicopter and I was so, so, so hungry. I said, I'm sorry. He goes, I'm so hungry. We landed, and I was so hungry. I said, I'm hungry. And They said, okay. And then they brought me a sandwich. And I'm thinking, yeah. this, is not, this is not quite the story I was anticipating, but this still has value, and so I'm going with it. And I go, oh, okay. Um, uh, what, what happened next? And he goes, well, but I couldn't eat the sandwich because of the people. And I said, I'm sorry? And he goes, I couldn't eat the sandwich because of people. And I said, Sly, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. When you say people – I thought you said people, like when you say people, what do you, what do you, you don't mean a people sandwich? He goes, yeah, they brought me a sandwich of people. And then, I'm, you know, and now he's getting a little frustrated because I've asked the question like three times in a row and I'm like looking at him and I don't want to offend him, but also I'm really uncertain of what's going on with this, this story Uh-oh. at this point. Uh-oh. And um, I said, so when you say people, I mean, is it like, does that mean like, it's like lunch meat made out of people? Or do they look like oh. people? know, <laughs> like i am just going with it. And he goes, There are little people. There's little people on my sandwich. People and I said, Well you didn't you didn't you didn't eat it? And he goes, Of course I didn't <laughs> I'm like like I'm a fucking idiot. He's looking at me like I'm an idiot. I'm like, Of course <laughs> I didn't eat the people. Um uh, I found a garbage can. I put it down on the lid just right there and then and then we wow. went, we played and then we flew out on the helicopter. It was the Rolling Stones helicopter. <laughs> and wow. uh I was like, I'm in, like, I, I I thought maybe that's a good story for heavy metal. Maybe, like, what if those things oh, yeah. were real and, like, he saved this alien. The sandwich. Person. The sandwich people. Could have started an a, a interstellar war. Oh, you God know? damn it. That's like, holy shit. <laughs>
2: that's like,
0: that's like Starling Green meets MIB. Hold on,
2: hold on. This
0: is, this is, uh, that. I would love to read that. Actually, in the story in heavy metal, where he's, he, has, he he's this close to eating an entire civilization living on his sandwich, and he and he's been starving. The poor guy has been starving for years. He can't eat because once the, once the food gets close enough to his face, he sees the
1: whole civilization living on it. It's it's uh it's like the hamburger helper guy. Except all a lot of them, the little hands, you know, in the commercial. Whoa, it's
0: like Horton right. hears the hoop too. It's it's, it's slide. Oh yeah, sly here, that's right. Slide here is a sandwich.
2: <laughs> right. Oh my god, <laughs> that's crazy.
1: Okay. I love so that he was are... getting mad at me though. That that was my favorite thing. Is he was so frustrated. Like, look, yeah. I told you. <laughs> 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 what the hell, man? Have you ever heard of a people sandwich? <laughs> like. I'm sorry, Slack. Wow, <laughs> wow,
0: that's that's impressive. I wonder when I wonder when he started
1: seeing those people. Well, they said that it's he all... had the Hells he came to his house uh, in the like early 70s uh, in the Hollywood Hills, and that they stayed for like 15 years doing. And, and there was like a mountain of cocaine, and then he, one night he uh, tumbled down the hill in the back of the house. And then that's, he messed up his neck. and It looks like his, like, I, I don't want to be indelicate in the way I describe it, uh, but it looks sort of like his neck isn't long enough now. Like, his head is kind of pushed down into his torso a little bit somehow. Um, ah, but I, I don't, like his accordion neck. Yeah, so I, I don't know uh, what that is. And, but uh, he was a very nice guy, and uh, he's got a really interesting voice. Um, and... uh you know, and he's a humanitarian because he doesn't eat human people sandwiches. You know, he refuses. Oh,
0: holy shit! Okay, so we have we have slipped sideways, sliding off of the shoulder of the road into tales from beyond the veil from that story. So I do a section. I do a section on my show called Tales from Beyond the Veil that's like any, you know, I'm already very fascinated by this story about, um, the electric chair or you saw, it, or was it the, well, whatever it is? Lethal, did lethal, it eject- lethal eject- injection. Lethal injection. Jesus Christ. Um, during that situation, was there, um, a moment after where you felt, uh, any, other worldly presence, or have you ever been in a haunted house situation? Have you ever seen UFOs? You know, I have well, seen here, I UFOs. I can tell you
1: this. I can tell you this is um, well that night. Uh, you know, the the inmate that was strapped down to the gurney, uh, and um, you know, they they it, the process is a three injection execution. One stops your brain. One stops your heart. One stops your lungs. Uh, Any one would be fatal. All three are. Um, uh, you know, of redundancy. Um, they strapped him down, and, and he, it was Tommy Thompson, and he had been convicted of the a rape murder in 1981 in Laguna Beach. Uh, the victim's name was Ginger Fleischley. And um, uh, he, he had been, his case had been declined for review by the Supreme Court. They refused to hear it. So he was out of appeals uh, that night, Um, and uh, so I thought, you know, going in, I I had a lot of anxiety uh, uh, about being part of this, even if you're there as a journalist, you're not part of the government, but... Just being part of the mechanism that this is this is what we do where I'm going to sit here in my chair and take notes And I'm not going to jump up and down and scream be- when they kill this guy because this is what's supposed to happen you know, this is this is, right, uh, right. is appropriate, you know, like um, and, and That's a you know, it's a it's a lot to deal with and, and the times was really sensitive about these issues and, and you know No one had to go cover an execution. You know if, if they really really felt like they would be able to do it but um, You know, uh, here's the thing. They, you go in by boat and it's at midnight. They they lock like six or seven of these big doors behind you. And by the time you get to your seat, you're a nervous wreck. And, you you know, you're in a room and there's like, there's like 20 people in the room. Uh, you know, the district attorney that convicted the guy, the chaplain, uh, family member of the, uh, the victims, family member of the defendant or the inmate, I should say, um, and, uh, but, you know, you know, one thing's going to happen is this is going to happen, right? Like you're sitting there and like, there's nothing you're going to, nothing's going to make this stop. You know, this is a train that's already left the station. And uh, it's a, you know, I really felt my heart in my chest and and it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's just strange and, and and dark place to be. Um, and, you know, on a personal level, I'm against the death penalty. I You know, I don't believe it. Uh, we have a system that's says it's a perfect punishment, but we don't have a perfect system, so I don't believe that we deserve it. I don't think that we have the certainty in our system to put people to death. And, um, the thing is, is I was tested, my, you know, my opinion's been fire tested because of, like, personal tragedy. My, um, my sister was murdered in 1993 in a uh, carjacking gone bad in Florida, and, That was a case that could have been a capital case because of the the circumstances of the crime, and uh, uh, you know I was against it then. You know, so people always say, you know, well, you would think differently if it it was somebody in your family and stuff. But you know, I I actually still feel that feel that way. So walking into that room, um, I had a lot of things I brought in with me, as anybody would, different things than other people, but a lot of things, no matter what. Uh, The crazy thing is right before they're about to do this, you know, maybe two minutes to midnight, um, the phone rings. And there's a phone in the corner. It's, you know, it's like the big red phone and it's so loud and it's a ring that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet, the sound of it. Uh, and it's, it just, I think I yell, I squealed, shrieked like a little girl. Like I, I swear I did when it rang because it's just, it cuts into the night. There was no, it's such a, a jarring sound. <laughs> And we we're all looking at each other. I remember there's an orange county register reporter, I remember there's an a p e reporter and so and um, we try to figure it out and what it was that they uh he had got a stay of execution we we didn't understand understand because the Supreme Court turned it down, and what it was is that the california the 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 ninth circuit had decided that they should never have sent the case to the to washington that they weren't done with it, so it was still within their jurisdiction, so they were going to stop it even though the Supreme Court had already said that it had to go forward. So it was just a, a clusterfuck, and um, so he did get executed that night, and I walked out and got back on the ferry, and it was the only time in, like, California history that there's been a last-minute thing like that. Um, wow! And I would spent spend the next three days in San Francisco uh waiting for the judges to make a decision, and um, so on my expense account, I'm staying at the, uh, at the Clift Hotel. I'm just loving life. It was like fantastic. Uh, and then, and then the judgment came on, uh, like Sunday afternoon. And, uh, I had like eight or nine minutes to write a story for the front page of the paper. It was super, super nerve wracking. Uh, I had to dictate it over a payphone. So it ended up being really just a very strange and, and challenging trip with a lot of pent up emotion and, and uh anti-climatic in a way uh and then you know they ended up executing uh, tommy thompson uh i think about a year and a half later but by then i was i was off doing stories you know about pink floyd and stuff so holy shit man can you wow it's crazy what right fucking what a roller coaster can you imagine
0: yeah, being that really guy tough. can you imagine being Tommy on the brink of that, and then getting the phone call at like a goddamn movie, just to have a year a year later, you're done. That's fucking crazy, man. I know that that that
1: happened. That happened like that. So you could obviously have your Absolutely. opinion. It, of it was a, it was crazy. She- uh, and I think he's a suspect. I mean, I said suspect again. I meant uh, he's a he's a, a convict, an inmate who I had doubts. That he was even guilty. Um well, I know was part of the crime. He and his uh, partner who testified against him, they each had sex with Ginger Fleischley and all three of them were doing PCP. um and, cause there's an aphrodisiac. Um but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Tommy was, you know, borderline uh, legal Im- imbecile by, by legal definition. I mean, he was like two IQ points above two i q points above the uh uh the legal level uh and um, you know i his, his his uh crony had like a career of uh, violent crimes against uh and the numerous uh, convictions of crimes against women and things like that and, and tommy did it and he said oh, tommy did it and tommy' like oh okay you know like it was it it was really pretty pretty bad. It was one of those cases where it it actually reinforces skepticism of the the death penalty um, for people that are inclined inclined to think that way. But um, yeah, it it was really, really strange. Um, Now, as far as ghosts, ghost, uh, I've never seen a ghost on the job or a UFO. Um, I did, I did, uh, I've interviewed some people that I was, I was pretty sure they were from another planet uh, oh. I, have no evidence. I have no evidence of it gotcha, gotcha yeah. <laughs> yeah. i um
2: you'll appreciate this i was uh
0: i you ever been to the chateau Marmont oh yeah, yeah, I mean I've had many experiences there with a lot of the people that you've interviewed you know it's like uh-huh. a, it's like a Grand Central Station. For you know, it, it's uh, at any time you're going to have some kind of interaction with some kind of icon. But yeah. um, so I so I was I, I really like it there, and uh, I like I'm very drawn to that place. I love the spaghetti bolognese, <laughs> um, and and I've had several instances. With uh, I felt uh, Belushi's presence there, and um, this one night I was uh, I was staying in the Hunter S. Thompson suite. Nice. Right. And um, so I'm in there, and I am writing. It's like 3 a.m. or something. It's, it's the witching hour, and I'm writing on my laptop, and um, I'm. I wrote something funny and I I laugh to myself and I swear that I feel someone something over my shoulder reading what I'm writing and I feel them almost like their breasts on my fucking neck. They they laugh too. Wow. A little like a little titter and I and I fucking I turn around see <laughs> <laughs> who the fuck is there. No one's there. Wow.
2: But I like to. I who knows if it was Hunter, but I like to think that maybe he was there blessing
0: my work. But uh, I um I've had many, many, many uh, ghostly situations, uh, stories that have happened at the chateau. Um yeah. Yeah, I love there's that
1: some place. room I love that place.
0: Yeah, there's some rooms there. There's a room there called uh, room sixty four, which is like just massive party room with it's like a room with many many different rooms and I stayed there one night they put me up there cause my, for one night because my, my room wasn't ready and I was like oh okay wow and, and I couldn't sleep because it was like Grand Central Station it felt like every it, it was like there was like a million ghosts in there and they were just still partying into the night you know while I was trying to get some sleep it's crazy wow that's awesome yeah that's really that's intense the uh
1: <laughs> you know the only thing i felt that supernatural it's 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 actually a coincidence cuz like i said i you know there were so many stories that i did it for so long um but it's actually one of the ones is the same day as the Clint with helicopter is that at the uh, when i did the interview with Clint, um you know he's been famous for so long, right? He's been famous since the 60s, right? Uh, he was a TV star back then, and um, he's been interviewed so often that it's really hard to find something interesting and new to say somebody like that. Um, but the, I, I had an hour for the interview, and at 50 minutes into the interview, five zero fifty, 0 50 I, I lean forward and I turn off the tape recorder and I close my notebook and I cap my pen, and I kind of do it in like a dramatic way, and he's like, What's what's going on? You know, like that. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, you know, well, I got it. Uh, you know, I uh, you know I know it. I got it when I know it. You know, when I've got it, I know it. You know, Clint, you're the only guy in town that finishes movies. I had a budget. I had a schedule. When you got it, you know it. You don't need to waste time. I don't need to waste your time. I got it. And he goes,
2: all right,
1: all right. And he like claps the table like, and you could tell this has never happened to him before. Like where. He, 10 minutes left in the interview and someone's like, okay, I'm done with you, Clint Eastwood. Uh, you know, you're free to go. Cause usually, you know, you have to have the publicist come in and say, okay, one minute and then come in and like, okay, that's it. And then please wrap up one last question. You know, it's like dragging, you know, everything's like clawing out another minute. And here I was just giving away 10. And, um, but I did, like I said, I'd interviewed him like three or four times before that and I knew his sensibility and I, I knew it would resonate with him. And, uh, we walk outside and there's, I'll send you a picture because someone took a picture right at that moment when we're walking out. And it's like one of my favorite pictures just because the expressions on our face are really funny. Um, but he said, so you're going back to L.A. tonight? And I said, you know, I haven't really decided I could. I might stay. He's like, well, why don't we have dinner? You should stay. We'll have dinner. And I said, okay. And uh he said, meet me here, you know, tonight at 7. So uh I showed up at 6, obviously, and I uh, sat there nervously and – Sure enough, in walks in Clint Eastwood, we had three-hour dinner um, and just talked about a million things, and uh, it was such a treat. And it's like I traded that 10 minutes and got three hours for it, and toward the end of that three hours, he said, you know, what's the story cause, uh, that you really want to tell? What's the story that you want to tell that you, you can tell better than anybody? I said, well, there's a few, but the um, the one that, people say most is this book I wrote uh, because I wrote a book called two badges about a gang member Uh, it's a true story about a woman I met um, and she's a cop now but she was a gang member and she's a battered wife and she's a welfare mom and she overcame all these things uh, and put herself through the police academy and she's a cop in her own neighborhood now and I was telling him the story about you know uh, how you know the other cops treated her and and the, the 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 crimes that she saw and the things that happened and he was leaning forward and he had a uh, bar of dark, dark chocolate like a little candy and he started to eat it but he, he kept pausing because and, and, he was listening to the story and, and I, w- I wanted to see how long I could keep him going going before he would take a bite like you know how good is this story that you know he, he doesn't even want to bite the chocolate that's in front of his face and as I'm telling him this story about the cop which I've told a million times so I can kind of just do it Um, I suddenly had an out-of-body experience. I I felt all of a sudden like I was at the top of the room looking down. I could see, like, the top of my head. I could see the top of his head. I could see the people around us. I could see the people that were behind me that I shouldn't be able to see from my seat. Um, It only lasted for, like, a second or two, but it was really distinctive and and unprecedented in my life and and, um, and unique and unique. Afterwards, I was thinking about it, and I just I felt like uh, you know my dad had died not long before that, and I felt like I was suddenly seeing what he was seeing, like, like he was there and he was watching. And like uh, you know, I've interviewed all these different people through the years, you know, murderers and presidents and actors and rock stars and everything and stuff, but a lot of them would have meant shit to my dad, you know, uh, but Clint Eastwood that would have really mattered to him. Like that, that would have been like a big thing. And I felt like in that moment, I was given the opportunity to know that he did know because I was seeing it from his point of view. Wow, you're astral, you're like astral projecting and having out a body experiences. That, that, that,
0: that is fascinating. It sounds like you were in a moment where you were at the top of your game you're like, it's like the universe was saying, yeah, you you just, you just reached expert status here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. New level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Level up. Um, That's funny. Yeah, you're right. Man, it's, it's a, uh, man, I could just talk to you for a long time, but I gotta, I gotta go put my kids to bed. But, um, thank you for coming on the show. This was, and, and thanks for, thanks for like, feeling like I
2: was
1: worthy enough to interview you. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Yeah, no, I'm a fan. I am a fan. And, and not only am I a fan of your screen stuff, uh, uh I haven't seen your stage stuff uh, from earlier in your career, but, uh, I'm a fan of your screen stuff. And now I'm a fan of your comics. Cause I, I really, really, uh, think they're, they're, first of all, they're, they're bonkers, uh, you know, completely bonkers, which I really like, uh, and they're really well written. So, uh, I'm, uh, it's a treat to be here. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's, uh,
0: that means a lot of color from me. I really appreciate it. I mean, uh, how did I do? How, how am
1: I as an interviewer? Did
0: I do okay?
1: You did great. You did great. Mostly you were interested. So that's, that's the main thing, you know, uh, it's like, um, and, and, you know, it's funny is that, after that Springsteen interview, <laughs> you know, I talked to his manager, John Landau, you know, who was a former journalist, you know, he's the guy that sure. wrote I, I have seen the future, yeah, you know, and it was Bruce Springsteen and and uh uh I was telling him the story about John Stewart. Um and he's like, Yeah, that that interview was tough, you know, because like, it just just the all the baggage. And Landau said, You know what you figured out is People like Bruce Springsteen—they don't want to meet someone that's interested in them. They want to meet somebody that's interesting. He knows people are interested in him. He can't turn that off. He just wants to meet somebody that is interesting to him, and that's why I led with the, you know, the Dick Cheney thing uh, and the uh, and, uh, Keith Richards thing when I talked to him. But I, I thought that was really—it's—it's it's kind of obvious advice, but it's also—it's surprisingly uh, useful, and, and uh, a lot of people. Don't ever think about it. They they treat interviews like it's uh, they're reading a laundry list or or uh, a roll call, and uh, it's to me like an interview is an interaction. It's a relationship. It's like a uh, uh, there's a give and take. There's a contract to it. You know, if, if one person reveals something, then the other person reveals something. And uh, you, as an interviewer, you always have to be willing to reveal.
0: That's how you cut that three hours out of Geesewood, man. You, you, you fuck, you're, you're, you're like, you're like a swordsman. You fucking you just cavalierly tapped your pen and said, no, I'm done. And you like, kind of like sized up his whole philosophy for him. You know, I'm doing what you do on a regular basis and I appreciate you. And he was just like, damn, I like this guy.
1: Yeah. It was awesome, dude. I gotta say it really was. I, I was, I, I was so happy and it and, and meant so much to me. And, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, a couple of years later when I left the paper, you know, uh, the last story I did was another Clint Eastwood story. So that's the way I left was, was with a big Sunday cover on Clint. And, uh, which I really, really appreciated. Uh, cause he, he and Leonard Nimoy were the two guys that I think, you know, of the big stars and everything that, uh, I, I really just took a, I, I felt like they were like father figures to me, you know, um, I, I spent a lot of time with Leonard over the years and, and, uh, just a super classy guy. And, and he did things, you know, on my behalf, you know, like as a, like a rabbi for me, um, in the industry and, um, just meant an awful lot. And, um, you know, if, if anybody, uh, is interested, there's a, there's an interview on YouTube, a two part interview I did with Leonard at his house. And uh, uh, it's more impressive to my son than all the articles I've ever done because it's got you know three million views on YouTube. But uh, it's a really cool interview, and, and you can you can see what a classy guy he is. And it's one I'm real proud of, so uh, uh, it's worth checking out. You got
0: to come back on here for a part two, man. Would you do that at some point? I promise. Awesome. All right, Jeff. We gotta wrap well, this you. up, uh, oh, oh, dude. Anytime, only because uh, only because like, I gotta go be a daddy. But um, yeah, this was a pleasure. Uh, thanks a for treat. coming on, and uh, yeah, we'll do it again, man. When does when does uh, did our did our uh, interview go up yet? Is it out there? Can people listen to it? It is. It is. It's it's doing, it's doing gangbusters. Okay, great. Um, send me a link, and I'll uh, I'll attach it to. Of this when I put it out, this will come out in
1: a couple weeks or, or probably sooner than that. And um, yeah, man, awesome, That's awesome. Really, well, thanks so really much. Pleasure. That sounds great. And then I'll send you uh, some stuff on the the new comics uh, that I'm writing. uh I'd love to read it. Yeah, I'd love to see what you're
0: doing, man. Really, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Right there
2: with you. Well, thanks again. Okay, brother. Take it easy. Bye. Cheers. Bye.